So good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guests today are Dr. Danny McVitie, founder of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice, and by the way, a Tampa native, and Ross Taylor, a highly accomplished photographer who was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for some of his work. Taylor teamed with filmmaker Luke Rafferty to create The Hardest Day, a documentary that chronicles the deeply emotional period when families have decided to say goodbye to their seriously ill pets and the lap of love veterinarians who come to their homes and help those animals transition. As you might imagine, the film is powerfully poignant, the very definition of a tearjerker at times, as we see an array of folks clearly heartbroken by the condition of their suffering pets and the wrenching decision to have the lap of love vets euthanize these animals. We also see the kindness and compassion evidenced by these veterinarians, including McVitie, who's not only interviewed as the founder CEO of the company, but later shown undertaking one of these visits late at night for a family she knows. We also see the added comfort provided to the animals and the humans that this final power is playing out at home versus at a veterinary hospital or clinic. The Hardest Day, which screened in upwards of 30 film festivals, will stream starting tomorrow, January 20th through January 28th. There's no cost to watch the film during this period, but you do need to register to watch the film. The link is presented on the Lap of Love social media pages and on some of our social media pages as well, including Talking Animals radio show on Facebook. We'll discuss The Hardest Day with Ross Taylor and Dr. Danny in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, we'll hear an animal song of more than a little grandeur by the wonderful Damien Sumi called The Lion, the Ram, and the Fish, first played on this show by the also wonderful Bev Capshaw. That's all happening a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss this moving documentary, The Hardest Day, with one of its filmmakers and one of its central figures. Today, because I'm hosting the show remotely, we're going to forego phone calls, but we still invite you to join the conversation by emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. Having said that, this is Dr. Danny and Ross Taylor on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Danny and Ross. I'm here. Oh, good. Hey, Dr. Danny. Yay. Hi, Duncan. How are you? I'm so I'm good. Hi, Ron. I'm here too. Hey, Danny. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So, um, so Dr. Danny, let's start with you, if we could. We've spoken multiple times on this show. Our first conversation was in January of 2012, so a decade ago, when Lap of Love was just a, a fledgling, really. So... But for those who didn't hear our past conversations or are otherwise unfamiliar with your operation, let's do a bit of Lap of Love 101, some history, how it works, how it's grown and so on. When did you launch Lap of Love and why did you? So I started in um, let me see, it was the, the, about the fall of 2009, which was three and a half or so months after I had graduated veterinary school. Um, I was doing emergency medicine at the time and just, you know, sometimes people come into the emergency room and it's a Friday and you know, there's nothing else you can do to save their pet, their pet's terminal, you know, is dying, but maybe we don't have to euthanize that day and I can come to their home Saturday or 
Sunday. Maybe their family can be together. So I would give the pet some pain medicine and really call that hospice care, which I'd volunteered for human hospice in college. So that's a little bit where I got that idea from. And it just kind of clicked with people and it, and it clicked with me too. I, I loved it. So it was fall of 09. And by the end of 2010, I was getting calls from other veterinarians wanting to do this work as well, which was probably the biggest surprise to me is that other people were, were as weird as I was, you know, wanting to do end of life care. From there, it kind of just grew. So now almost 13 years later, we have over 250 doctors working with us and um, an, a, a, to- a total team of over 500 employees. Wow. Well, I want to get into some of how that changed and grew like that. But one thing that, as you were just describing this now, I don't know if we've ever even talked about this in our previous uh, conversations, but why do you think when you had this idea and it kind of clicked a little bit and others, fellow veterinarians said, hey, we want to maybe uh, get in on this. Why do you think there hadn't been something quite like Lap of Love, at least to the extent that Lap of Love kind of quickly hit the ground running? Why do you think it hadn't really been done to that degree before? You know, I, I now that I kind of look back on it, I think yeah. that just the economy probably just wasn't ready for it. Pet parents didn't, veterinarians probably didn't think that enough pet parents wanted it to kind of grow. There, there was one doctor, Dr. Kathy Cooney, doing this in Fort Collins, who was probably arguably the one doctor in the whole country that was doing it to um, a full time. There were doctors here and there, and they'll still come up to me at conferences and say, I've been doing this for 30 years, you know, part time here and there. But to do it and then scale it was a completely different thing. And then scaling a veterinary practice outside of your state bounds is very, very difficult. So that was that was a process that I have enjoyed. And I think not not a lot of veterinarians enjoy the business side of it. So I, I think that was probably a, a big factor uh, you know, to it as well. And the challenges of scaling it are because different states may have different uh, legal requirements or other things that you have to navigate around or... Yeah, there it's just expensive to navigate. And that's that's yeah. actually when we first started, we were a quote franchise because the franchise, although we didn't we didn't charge franchise fees like like they, you know, like typical franchises do. Yeah. But that allowed us to practice outside of the state of Florida under a, a company name. So we had to work through those. And, and I, again, I enjoy that. I enjoy, it's really weird. I enjoy reading state statutes and figuring out because every state, every state views it differently. In some states you're allowed yeah. to own a veterinary practice being a non-veterinarian and sometimes you can't. So it's just complicated. Yeah. So how would you say it's most changed? Obviously there it's gotten big, super yeah. big and, and national and you say upwards of 500 employees. What else is notably different? And what do you think propelled that change? Because it sounds really kind of dramatic over a relatively short period of time. You know, I, I think we got a little lucky and most big businesses would tell you that they just, they rolled out at the right time. And when, when we rolled out, it was 2009. That's, that's when I started. So the economic collapse was kind of all settling still, you know, it was still, we we were still in the middle of this big economic collapse. Yeah. And there were a lot of people. When I first started, I had to handle a lot of clients that were willing to pay $300 for their pet to have an in-home euthanasia, you know, an, an, a nice experience, but they they weren't in a position to spend one or $2,000 to get their pet to live another year or so. Mm. I had a lot of those situations back then. Um, not so much now, but I think that, so there was a little bit of luck in that sense. And then, and then with that economic recovery, if you will, people kept getting animals. Animals have continued to become more and more important in our lives. You know, they've literally gone from the backyard to like under our sheets now, right? Like we sleep with our animals. Like we might not sleep with our spouse always, but like our dogs in the bed. Right. And so as the animals have become more and more important, that has 
become something people are willing to pay for. And then on top of that, we compound the fact that more and more veterinarians are female. You know, in 2009, the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, tipped the scale from being 50%, over 50% male to now we're over 50% female. And Mm. that will continue to grow until we level out at around 85 to 90%, which is what veterinary classes are graduating at right now. With that ratio of male to female, you mean? Yeah. So eventually we'll be 80 to 85 to 90% female. And what comes with that is that, you know, within five to 10 years of us graduating veterinary school, let's just even say half of us have kids. You know, when you have kids that reduces the number of hours that you're working, um, just a fact. I mean, I've got four kids, like you never go back to work full time. You don't want to, we're caretakers. You know, we love our children. We want to be with them. So anyway, that, that reduction in and available man hours of veterinary medicine means, along with the fact that animals are more important to us, means that we have this intense desire, you know, to cli- from clients. A lot of people want us. They want us to yeah. work. They need veterinary care. Not a, not all of us are working the same amount of hours that we used to. And so what that means is that the life of a veterinarian working is very, very busy. Mm-hmm. We see 20 to 30 pets on a regular day. That's a regular veterinary schedule in a general practice. With Laugh of yeah. Love, we, pe- we help, you know, a busy day. I mean, a really busy day is five. Like that's a yeah. really busy day. The average is two to three. So, you know, I, I think that 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 has a that has brought a lot of doctors to us because they get burned out. The type of doctor that comes to us are the ones that that miss that human interaction, that want that really, really intense interaction. And that's what Ross and Luke did so well at in this documentary is showing what that interaction is. You know, this is yeah. not a normal job for us. Yeah. This is not a normal thing. And what happens is that 13 years later, I look around myself and the doctors that have been called to this type of work are this very unique personality. Yeah, They are, they love animals and they, they not only love the animals because all of us love the animals, right? Every veterinarian loves the animals, Sure, but there's a particular a type of veterinarian that also loves the human. Yeah. And that's, that's when you get this really special special type of person. It's a confluence probably of those two things in in great degree that people become a lap of love veterinarian. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to get to uh, Ross. I feel like I've been leaving out, but I'm going to get to you in one sec, Ross, I promise. But one last thing that you might may, may have just addressed by noting the gender disparity and kind of how that shift has happened and where, where it's headed. But I'm just wondering, Dr. Danny, if, if you had to identify like a, a telling moment or development where you knew for sure once you had launched lap of love where, hey, this thing is it's going to work, it's going to go national, and it's going to really succeed, essentially. What would you point to as kind of an identifiable moment or episode? So when, when we when we first decided to scale it, and Dr. Mary Gardner had already joined me, and we were we developed this software system to help manage records and things like that. Yeah, I put an ad out, you know, basically like to all of the United States, like, hey, any doctors want to join us? And I remember I literally remember having that first interview with a doctor, Dr. Jennifer Hawthorne in Charlotte, North Carolina. I remember sitting where I was. I was I was like two years out of vet school. Here I am talking to somebody that's like five or six years out of veterinary school, and I'm trying to convince her, you know, to come and join. And it was this super like people talk about imposter syndrome and I, I don't even identify with that statement very much. I just felt like dumb or inadequate. Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm not an imposter. I'm just a dope. 
Yeah, yeah literally. Yeah. No, literally. I'm like, I'm not no, that's, that's like, yeah. I'm just like unprepared, right? Ill-prepared, okay. but you just have to yeah. fake it. And I just, I decided to just talk from my heart. And like, I'm, I'm like, you know what? I don't have to convince anybody of anything. Like if it's the right fit, it's the right fit. And I guess I wasn't super aggressive in that way as a salesperson, but that's always fit me because instead of going out and finding the right people and the right clients, like they've always just come to us. You know, if you, yeah. I just believe if we, if we, if you, if you exude the right energy, those people find you. Yeah. I remember literally sitting there talking to her for the first time and, and like trying to tell myself that over and over and over again. It's okay. It's okay. And she joined and it was like, yeah. this amazing. and then I remember the first time she saw a client because I already had my little mini, you know, version here in Tampa. Yeah. And Mary had hers in South, in South Florida. But when she saw her first client and that check got deposited for the first time, we were like, oh my God, this might work. <laughs> you know? So the Dr. Hawthorne kind of moment was significant in all those ways saying yes. And then her first kind of case and um and everything that went with that that's kind of where you really pinpoint like this is going to work this is clicking this could work and not just in a mini way like i knew it could yeah. work in a mini way because we were doing it but like right. on a global like in a right. big way this could sounds work. like dr hawthorne in that experience helped you extrapolate uh, from, what, I, from what you and dr gardner were, were just doing on on relatively small scale at that point and it was like i can see where this could go talk speaking of scaling up you're, you're talking about scaling up in, in the most notable sense yeah yeah exactly all right, so I, Ross, tell me her for that. Yeah, sorry. What's that? Your turn. I said I, I always felt indebted to her for that. I'm know? sure. Yeah, it sounds like really momentous. And that that's really uh, great with something that's become this kind of a great success story in all kinds of ways. So, Ross, tell me a bit about yourself. Dr. Danny and I obviously go way back, but this is the first opportunity you and I have had to, to chat. What, what drew you to photographing these often wrenching scenes? And does it reflect a particular experience that you had had at some point or just a certain sensibility or what prompted you initially to say, this is something for one of my next photo projects or undertakings. This is what I'd like to do. Well, thank you, first of all, for uh, being here. Uh, it's an honor to be uh, with you and Dr. Danny, for sure. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, in a I'm in a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. And uh, my training before that was as a photojournalist. And I've done documentary work throughout my career. And as part of my uh, path in Boulder, uh, I do, I continue to do documentary work. And I was looking for uh, a new project. I can't, I can't believe this, but way back in 2017, this is how far back this, the origin of this be, it begins. But it's really because a friend of mine went through the process herself. And I was unaware that this could be an event that could be done at home. And I was really struck at, while it is difficult, uh, I was struck at how uh, I think, I guess, not healing, but how comforting that process could was was for her. And I thought uh, this would be interesting to explore. And I began to look online and I saw very little media and representation of this so far. And so I, I began to approach a lot of people uh, and I thought, I know this is an unusual request, um, but I'd, I'd be interested in documenting this. And I reached out to a number of people and I, I, I looked up and found Lap of Love online uh, in Colorado and thought it was a, a, a Colorado-based group. And, and I think within an hour, if you look at a timestamp, and I think this really shows and is a credit to the professionality of Lap of Love and their communication style. But somebody, a woman, a woman named Paula responded um, from Lap of Love and said, yes, I think we'd be interested in talking. And in fact, Dr. Danny is going to be in Denver uh, passing through. Uh, and so <laughs> shortly after I met, I drove out to the airport and Danny was on a layover. Uh, we 
talked and then she said, why don't you come down? And later that month I was in Tampa and that began a photo project. And I say that just as the backdrop because the photo project, when it was published, it went viral and it ended yeah. up pu- publishing across the world. And um, But I felt like there, there needed to be more because when I was on site of hearing this, hearing the experience and seeing the experience, I felt compelled to come back. And that's, that was the origin of coming back for a documentary film. Yeah. Sorry for the long winded answer. But- no, no, that's great. I just want to let <laughs> folks know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guests are Dr. Danny uh, McVitie, founder of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice, and Ross Taylor, an acclaimed photographer who teamed with filmmaker Luke Rafferty to create The Hardest Day documentary, which chronicles that wrenching moment when families decide to say goodbye to their seriously ill pets and the Lap of Love veterinarians who come to their homes and help those animals transition or across the Rainbow Bridge. If you'd like to ask Dr. Danny or Ross for a question or offer a Comment. We're not doing phone calls today, but you're welcome to email DJ at WMNF.org or tech 813-433-0885. All right. So I guess we have a sense of the origins of your photography piece on this theme and how it really did take off and go viral, as you say. So I guess my next question, Ross, would be how did it move from sort of heralded photo exhibit or collection to documentary film? I guess this might be where Luke Rafferty enters the picture, as it were, and at some point, but I'll let you uh, recount that. Right. So the, it was actually the last case that I documented uh, while I was photographing. And I'll, I'll never forget it. It was a it was, um, really touching moment. And as as the event was happening, it was really, really touching, really beautiful. But outside, you could hear thunder and lightning. It was just a very visceral experience. Mm. And it was just every sense was uh, could, could that could be present was present. And I felt like to honor the experience and what Dr. Danny and Lap of Love is doing and all the vets who do this type of work, that a film that could tap into all of the senses would be the best way to do this. And Luke Rafferty was a former student of mine uh, when I was at Syracuse University at graduate school. I taught him <laughs> an introduction to photography course and we remained uh, uh, in, in touch. And I was always really impressed with his um his work ethic and his drive and I felt like he would be a good person to connect with and so we we came back and and Dr. Wow. Danny allowed us to spend more time with him. So as that was coming together and you're reconnecting with Luke, who actually first conceived or proposed the film idea? And when the idea for making this this a documentary film did come up, did either of you or, or Luke Rafferty express reservations about taking what you had done obviously very effectively in, in the uh, photography realm into a documentary film which is a whole different medium obviously and kettle of fish in some ways given the uh, subject matter well it was a, an origin of my idea but it was a definitely a partnership a lap of love and and dr danny and uh, none of this could have been done without the the um the allowance of entering the space and working with the veterinarians and the families so uh, luke was along for the ride i think our main concern was being respectful of families photography yeah. is one thing it's a lot lighter and the gear is not as prominent when you're working on a feature film there's there's just simply a bigger presence and we had to be very careful of, of reducing that larger footprint while we documented these cases. So tell me a little bit about how you shaped the film's format, given that were there certain parameters that you set for filming the families or or were there certain like ground rules that, that you guys either established or that the participating families requested when they said, yeah, we'll participate in your film? Uh, the, the ground rule that we always adhered to, uh, that we'd always honored was uh, that if anybody had any hesitation, well, first of all, we, we wouldn't document them. So every every case was 
um, with the approval, the prior approval of a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's the underlying ground ground rule because we certainly wouldn't want to impose on on, on a family. Uh, and then on on site, once we would arrive, it would be a mixture of things. We would uh, we fill things out. We want to make sure that people feel very comfortable. Um, and then we always told both the veterinarians and the families, if at any point you want us to stop, uh, you you can you can have that because we wanted to make sure they had agency to, and control of the experience. We wanted to be uh, mindful of this the entire time. Yeah. yeah and, and, and Duncan, you know what what we did because the the doc the filming was done after we had already had. Ross out for the photography. So it was an organic conversation with the families because we were able to say we've already we've worked with Ross and his team before. They're amazing. They're wonderful. And, um, you know, and so here's what, you know, and, and, and basically, you know, whenever we have photographers along for the ride, because there have been multiple times that different media outlets across the country would want to follow us. We put a note on the on the doctor's calendar and we basically say, like, you could offer this to the family, but if the family declines, no problem. And if they do accept, we do the entire appointment at no charge at all. It's something that we feel is is that they're giving a gift to other families by allowing a, a you know a window into their experience. Yeah. So it's not really like, hey, for this, you know, for 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 the uncomfortableness, we're just going to give this to you for free. It's it's really us knowing like, hey, this is this is an investment in in, in a lot of other people's experience as well. So yeah. we cover the entire charge for them, including the cremation and everything, just to make that experience, you know, a little bit better. And so that was how we opened up the conversation with the families. Yeah. And obviously allow them to say no if it's not something. And there were a few people that that say no, for sure. You know, there's always, I would probably a little bit over 50-50, maybe two thirds say yes, but there's always yeah. quite a number that say no. Yeah, I, I, I do imagine it takes a certain kind of person or family to agree to be filmed at a moment of really kind of some of the most profound grief and sadness. I mean, even just while watching The Hardest Day, which is an excellent film, by the way, which I think hopefully I've already indicated earlier at the intro of the, of the uh, show. But I became distraught enough where I thought I wouldn't even really want someone filming me watching the movie. Yeah. Much less saying goodbye to one of our pets just because it's an ugly cry. And believe me, I don't need that captured on film. So it is. So. And it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, even as doctors, it's, it was very, it was very, uh, it was very fascinating having them around because, you know, Luke and Ross, and I, I, I don't even, you didn't even go into Ross's background at all, but he's, you know, ph- photographed in war times and war operating rooms and all this stuff. And like, well, just just thing. while we're on that, you were nominated, yeah. I think, for a Pulitzer for some of that wartime coverage. Were, were you not, Ross? Yes, I worked in a trauma hospital in Afghanistan. And yeah, for that work. It's just like you yeah. don't hear those words from people, you know, in in on the earth. Like it's so Ross has this, and if you can't tell by his voice, like just this incredibly calming presence about him, like without even saying a word. And I think you have to be that type of person to do this type of work. Also, he's, he blends in with the feeling of, of the space. And, and to his point, you know, I, he followed me around when he did the photos first. And then when they came back with the documentary idea, we were like, oh my gosh, yes. Like photograph is one thing. It's a still, but when you, when you document what we say, how we say it, what the families are going through the no, no wait. And then the moment when us doctors step away, you know, after the euthanasia, we give the family time alone. Alone and like documenting that, you know, what that family goes through, like when they break down, like I'm going to start crying even just saying it, but like, it is this intense experience that to your point, Duncan, like, I, I don't even know if I would have said yes, you know, yeah. to, to that type of thing. But these families that allow that it's, um, I think in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a testament to the love of 
the love that they had of their pet, that that experience with their animal is documented forever. You yeah. know, that will live forever and it touches people and their pet have maybe cry. Like their, te- their pet touches people for years down the road when stories. Yeah, it, it, it's a certain uh, form of almost mem- memorializing that yeah. pet by participating and agreeing to participate in this. And it sounds like if I, if I understood what Ross said, they were asked initially, and then at any point along the way, if they said yes, they could still opt out. Uh, if if it just if they just felt uncomfortable or it became too much, or sure. they didn't uh, think that was something they wanted to end up participating on on further reflection. Absolutely, so, yeah. So across the several veterinarians that we see in the film that are dispatched to, to various homes, there's a real uniformity in approach. So. To what extent, Dr. Danny, is there a prescribed protocol that Lap of Love veterinarians are asked to follow? And I guess sort of a parallel question, how much room is there for them to essentially kind of uh, either improvise or engage in their own style or approach? Just because yeah. you've already talked yeah. about how what an unusual mix that Lap of Love veterinarians tend to be in terms of both veterinarians and and how they feel about animals, but how they feel about humans. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And, and you know what? I'd love even Ross to comment on that. Also, we, sure. we, we provide what I have found to be, you know, really, really good things to say and really good sedation protocols and really good processes. But I, as a doctor, I never want someone to tell me how to practice medicine or, or really ha- how to do things perfectly. If I, if I think something else works better. So we give these tools to, the, to our doctors, but yeah. they have the ability to say and do and manage and do what whatever they want, as long as it's to the benefit of the, you know, of the family that we're serving. And, and again, that just goes back to who chooses this work. The client, the, the doctors that choose to do this work are the ones that we don't have to teach anything. They already have compassion, you know? Yeah. There are some things that that I just as a personally having founded the company that, that are really important to me. And one of them, for example, is what we look like. And so to that extent, we, you know, I, I, I do require the doctors to have the one doctor bag. It's a it's a leather doctor bag that looks yeah. like an old school. It's what you imagine James Harriet would have taken around, you know, a house yeah. call doctor would take around. And sometimes our doctors would say like, hey, I found this other bag that looks really good. I'm like, you can, you can bring that also, <laughs> but you got to have this bag because it just, it gives the feeling. And then also- It's kind of of symbolic in a way, right? Yes, it's symbolic of like Mm -hmm. comfort and love and Mm -hmm. I'm here for you and I'm- I'm a human and, a, you know, and then secondarily a doctor. And, and the other thing is we don't wear scrubs and we don't wear white coats. Yeah. So that's the only other thing is, you know, because and sometimes our doc, like that's in our doctor brain, like we're going to wear a scrub, but I'm like, no, no, no. These people, they, we are a friend coming over. They don't, we yeah. don't, they don't want us to look like, smell like, appear like a doctor at all. But Ross, I would love to hear what you thought because you saw a lot of us in action. I just quickly want to know, and I think it's amazing that you said that. I, I don't think I ever thought about the, uh, what people wear and how you allow them to be themselves. I just finished another feature film on a, on a doctor who works in the refugee community and he doesn't wear a white coat either because he wants them to see, like, uh, he wants to be more relatable. So as far as the cases, uh, I, I was just always struck at that I think there is that um, the the need to, to be on point throughout the case, but you can definitely see the personality of each vet come through. And I think that allowance of being able to be yourself helps people and helps the veterinarians tap into their own internal strengths and compassion and then allow some fluidity to move within moments. And uh, it was really wonderful to to see a a person's uh, personality come through whether it be deep compassion, sometimes even humor is a great way to lighten 
not to diminish the the reality of the situation, but if somebody was funny, they, they could tap into that. And, and it's a way of diminishing some of the tension and to assist in healing. And I found that really striking. Yeah. You know, and, and, and Duncan, it was even interesting for me to see the doctors in action because I know these people personally, you know, most of them are my dear, dear friends that I've known for many years. And Dr. Lisa, for example, she's one of the doctors and, and she's incredible at what she does. And I always have known that she's amazing, but to see her in action, I actually, I, I said to her after I saw the film, I was like, you are amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And I had no idea that it was that amazing. <laughs> yeah. She had a, I mean, everybody was great, but she stuck, stuck out in some ways just because she yeah. was so affectionate and kind of what you're talking about in terms of the bag and the clothing or whatever she mm-hmm. seemed to immediately connect and how you doing sweetheart i mean she'd walked in and two seconds later was calling one or more of the people's sweetheart which is hard to pull off sometimes even under the best of circumstances but she she really could which yeah. i thought said a lot about her and her sensibility as a human and obviously as a veterinarian and uh, so i was really struck by that as well i think it's worth i think it's just quickly worth noting too that veterinarians are amazing in the fact that they can build an immediate and it's required to build an immediate connection with the families and i yeah. think they spend a lot of time in preparation and thought and it's it's really noted yeah it seems like again I mean, sort of stating the obvious here, but it's a very specific skill, I think, to go into this kind of situation, especially because one of the other things we get a sense of from the film is that the reactions of the people slash families that are having to say goodbye to their pets can really vary wildly. And some are super, super upset. I mean, everybody would be upset, of course. I think that's a baseline. But some are more dramatically so. Some are physically shaking. There's So I think there's a lot for a vet walking in that situation, not knowing what kind of reaction they'll get. And yet rolling with and kind of helping neutralize and calm whatever the reaction is, because it's still an awful, awful thing that the, that person or those people have decided it's time to do. And um, I was really struck about that just because we see a good several uh, lap of love vets over the course of the film. But they all, and they they all have different experiences that are chronicled by Ross and Luke. But that really kind of got to me collectively, like how no matter what the situation was that they faced in that home, they were like not rattled in the least. And they were super kind and compassionate. Again, things you would hope and expect. But walking into that situation is super hard, probably at the best of easiest of times. And I don't know if there's even a slightly even easy version of that. I don't see how there could be. But I uh, was really impressed with with that just because, again, there was probably, what, good eight or nine lap of love vets that we met over the course of the film. And, and again, they all had different styles that we talked about. Doc, Dr. Lisa was much more kind of demonstrative, and but they all were very, very good. And that is a tough situation. And not coincidentally, I guess I should say that since I've posted uh, about this film and about this interview, gotten a ton of comments on social media and other things. About, and everybody has had that's had any kind of lap of love experience to a person has raved about it and just said, I don't, I don't know that I could watch a film like this currently, you know, just because of how shaken I still am. But Lap of Love was amazing and magical. So huge kudos uh, to to you and your team there, Dr. Danny, on that. Thanks, Duncan. People say that all the time. And and I'm like, it has to be like that. (laughs) Like we can't, we can't 
have anything else. Like it has to be perfect and amazing. You know, there is no, right. there's, there's no other way to do this. And you but know, it's and, also, and for, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, you know, for the people that, that have been through this and, and, and obviously feel like this would be too hard to watch. I completely empathize. You know, there, there is, I, I think you would find that Ross and Luke did such an amazing job of actually showing the process yeah. and really what goes into it and how we prepare as well. Um, and kind of what, like what happens literally he, he shows me getting in the, like leaving my family, you know, to go help a, a, another another family and right it's it it gives you i guess a little bit of a feeling because just as we see these pet parents as as humans and you know what they go through i think that it shows a humanity and and um and us as well you know the team that answers the phones and what it's like to probably talk to families like that all day and so it's there's a little bit more color than than just the loss of the pet but for sure. Fast forward through a couple. <laughs> for sure. Well, other folks know again who might just be tuning in. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'm speaking with Dr. Danny McVitie, founder of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice, and Ross Taylor, one of the filmmakers who created The Hardest Day, a documentary about families saying goodbye to their seriously ill pets, and the Lap of Love veterinarians who go to those homes and help those animals cross over the Rainbow Bridge. The film is about to start a nine-day run of streaming at no cost. Although you do have to register, and that link is on Lap of Love's social media pages and elsewhere. Meanwhile, we invite you to join the conversation. Today, we're not doing phone calls, but you're welcome to uh, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So as we've kind of established, this film is brimming with supremely kind people. Um, and uh, clearly, the, the Lap of Love veterinarians are uniquely kind and compassionate. But I might suggest in some ways that the heart and soul of this movie may be Donna. Mm, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so may, I'd like to ask both of you if you could just talk for just a moment or two, whatever, about Donna, what, what she means to the film. And, of course, on a much larger and more important scale, what she means to the Lap of Love operation. So Donna um, is actually a former elementary school principal. And I don't know, Ross, if we touched on that or if you and Luke touched on that. I've, I've, yeah, yeah, I don't think you mentioned that. She is this incredibly kind, like you imagine her being the most perfect grandmother that you could possibly ever want. She's actually not even that old, but she is still with us. You know, she's been with us for many years. We will never allow her to leave us, even if she's there to rah-rah, you know, the whole team. But um, she, uh, I, I don't even want to ruin it for, you know, the the interview that, that you had with her, Ross, but it, I'll, I won't even forget seeing that part for the first time. She basically talks about this incredibly, you know, moving phone call that she had with somebody that, that discussed what this animal meant to, to her. You know, she was talking to the, to the client and the client was saying that this cat was so meaningful to me. She helped me through difficult yeah. times in my life. And like, it's just, I mean, like tears flowing down my face, you know, when listening to this and, and I, you know, she's, she's the, she's the one that everyone goes to. I mean, still yeah. and for years and years. And, and actually before COVID, when we all worked in, in the, the hot, the, um, office, she would be the one that when families would come to pick up their ashes, because sometimes they would come to us, sometimes they would go to their veterinarian, kind of depends on what the family has wanted. Mm -hmm. But when people would come to us to pick up the ashes, she would walk out to them with the with the, the box, you know, um, containing the ashes with the urn. And she would sit down with literally sit down on the couch with them and open up the package and open up the urn. Cause the first time you see the urn is, 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 you know, very difficult for, for most of us. That's yeah. like usually when people even start grieving and she would be the one she wanted to do that. She's like, I want to do that. That's what I, that's what I wanted to do. So Donna is, we should have more people on the earth like Donna. 
For sure. Yeah, no, she she really stood out amongst, like I say, a, a bunch of tremendous people. She just stood out because, I mean, there was times where you see her fielding calls and then talking to someone and saying, call me if you need me, whatever. And in all kinds of cir- circumstances, including ones of great loss and grief, people say that. And I'm not saying they don't mean it, but you could tell she totally meant it and would take a call in the middle of the night from anybody who needed to talk or have some help from her or guidance or whatever. So, yeah, she just seems like... Uh, amazing. So we're sort of uh, nearing the end of our time, you guys. But um, I think it's safe to say that it's rare for people who've made a a film, much less a film that's gotten all kinds of acclaim and done well in film festivals to then say, hey, we're going to make it available to stream at no charge for like eight or nine days. Um, But to me, that suggests you must have some fairly specific objectives in mind to do this. What are those objectives? And also talk about how people can see the film at no cost as well. I'll start, but I want Danny to end because I think she's the most uh, eloquent of this. <clears throat> I think I, I want people to understand the power of the human-animal bond and those that, who work to uh, help us navigate uh, the whole breadth of that experience. And I personally have been profoundly touched by this experience. And I want and want to share that uh, feeling that that my life has been changed uh, from this mm-hmm. experience for the better. And, and as many people as we can, I'd love to, to reach. Yeah, that that was that was really the whole goal. You know, Ross and Luke did this entire film out of their own pocket. You know, you're not going to hear him say that, but there's no big company backing. This isn't a Netflix, you know, production put together like this is this was a project done out of just passion and love. And, you know, you can tell by who Ross is that they this that's how that film was put together. And the fact that it gives people a a window into an experience that the doctors and I do every day, but not everybody gets to see that. And people feel so alone when they're going through it. They don't feel like anybody else understands. So for us, you know, Lab of Love, we, we wanted to get behind this. We wanted to get behind Ross and Luke and give them an opportunity to have as many eyeballs as possible. Got a couple companies to join us, you know, to help promote it. And from the beginning, we're like, we're going to do this at no charge. You know, this isn't something we want people to pay to watch. We want to, we want to support getting as many, as many people to see this and as many people as they can to feel like you're not alone. You know, this experience, this bond you have with the animals, what these animals mean to you, we get it. You know, this, this is not an abnormal thing that you're going through. And that was, again, that, that was the goal from the beginning was just as, as many people as we can touch as possible. Yeah. Well, it seems that there's a lot of, you know, sort of cultural and other things that that can and will be shifted as more and more people see this. I mean, one of the one of the interviews in the film is this bioethicist, Jessica Pierce, who's talking about how so many people just don't take the death of pets seriously. And obviously, I think you'd have to be a non pet person for that really to be the case. But it just seems like among the things that can happen is is there's I mean, grief is a powerful feeling and so is shared grief, I think. And and someone as tough as it is to watch the kind of grief that unfolds and sometimes on the screen in in, in the film, I think it's super important for people of all kinds of levels of exposure to, to loss over their, whatever their lives have been so far in that realm and also whatever their exposure to animals are. So it just feels like this can make a big difference in individual attitudes for sure, but also cultural attitudes, I think. 
if more and more people get to watch this and say, wow, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, or I'm really impressed by what, what I just saw there. So it just feels like that's really, really important. And uh, so again, we, sh- we should say, I guess I did at the beginning, but we can say again that you do have to, I mean, the, the film you can watch without any charge, which is great, but you do have to register to, to have that opportunity. And there is the link to do so on the Lap of Love uh, social media pages. I put it on the Talking Animals radio show page, and I think some other social media pages. So it's pretty easy to find how to do that. And again, it's it's more than a week, so you still have time to sign up and to watch it. So that's really great. So, um, all right, well, I think we're just towards the end of our time here. Uh, let's just talk for one last quick second about the clay paw print ritual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the clay paw print is super important. Years and years and years ago, uh, this is a long time ago, uh, a doctor that was working with us, I found out that um, that she was asking people if they wanted, like, hey, do you want a paw print? And I was like, no, 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 you can't do that. You give a paw print. You always give a paw print. You don't even ask. You just got to do it. So um, the paw print is, it's an air dry clay that we use. And to me, you know, we, we're coming to families' home and about 70% of the time we leave with the family's pet. They they ask us to handle cremation arrangement. So more than half the time we're leaving with this family's pet. We have to leave something behind that reminds them of their animal. And to me, the, the paw print is just, it's it's an incredible representation of what that animal was to them, right? It's the paws that you see the paws grow from when they're a puppy. Like you hold the paws and, you know, rub them and everything. And yeah. so- we leave that paw print with that family along with a little clipping of their hair. So nice. yeah, everybody, everybody gets it. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's an important ritual and an important thing of going through a process and, and helping people through what again is often super difficult and super sad and, and just the degree of sadness and grief might vary, but everybody's got those feelings and this gives you something to help offset that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking to Dr. Danny McVitie of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice and Ross Taylor, one of the filmmakers of The Hardest Day. You can go to lapoflove.com to find out more about what they do and their services. And they're, and again, across the whole country at this point, 500 some odd employees, I guess you said, Dr. Danny. And the, the website for the film is thehardestdayfilm.com. And again, you just search uh, for The Hardest Day uh, on social media or Lap of Love, and you can get to that to that link to register to watch the uh, the film, which obviously we uh, highly recommend. So thank you guys so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. And thanks for making a wonderful, important film. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So next up, we're going to um, hear from John Mulaney in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Baby Grandma, taken from his uh, album, The Comeback Kid. So Lamar, if we can hear a little bit of comedy in the wake of our conversation here from uh, John Mulaney with Baby Grandma, that'd be great. My wife and I don't have any children. We have a dog. We have a little puppy named Petunia. She's a tiny little French bulldog puppy. I like having a puppy that's a bulldog because it's like having a baby that is also a grandma. Her, her body is young, her face is as old as time. She definitely saw the Nazis march into Paris. She always gives me this look of like, oh, the things I have seen. You have no idea. The Gestapo threw my printing press into a river. But go tell your jokes. Bring me my dish. She said that. Petunia Petunia is my best friend in the world. I give her a million kisses a day. She does not like me and barks at me and bites me all day long. We had to get a dog trainer into the apartment because Petunia is a bad dog. We tell her that every day. We go, hey, you're bad at being a dog. 
So the trainer came into the apartment. Sorry, didn't even walk into the apartment. Walked into the threshold and went, oh, okay. <laughs> like she was an exorcist or something. She said, I see what the problem is. She said, Petunia has become the alpha of the house. And then she pointed at me. She said, you are no longer the alpha of the house. And in the back of my head, I was like, I was never the alpha of the house. I turned to my wife. I was like, let's pretend it'll be fun. Yes, I owe my title of alpha, which I once had. How could I reclaim it? Because that was a thing that existed at one time. She said, you need to show dominance over your puppy. These are things people say to me. I said, how do I do that? She said, well, let me ask you this. Who eats dinner first, you or Petunia? I was like, Petunia eats dinner first. She eats dinner at 5 p.m. because she's a foot long and two years old. She said, no, you need to eat dinner first because the king eats before anyone else eats. Oh, yes. And what a mighty king I will be eating dinner at 4.45 in the afternoon. Ah, ha, ha, ha! Look upon your sovereign, Petunia, and tremble. My lands stretch across this entire one bedroom, and I eat dinner whenever I choose, as long as it works for the schedule of a dog. She said, no, you don't actually have to eat dinner before Petunia. You just have to convince Petunia that you've already eaten. So, for the past month, before my wife and I give Petunia her dish, we take down empty bowls and spoons, and in front of her we go, mmm, dinner, mmm, good dinner. Like we're space aliens in a play about human beings that they wrote but they didn't work that hard on. Mmm, we're eating dinner. Meanwhile, Petunia's just staring at us with her Paul Giamatti face like, You're not eating dinner. Dish now. All right, that was John Mulaney with a piece called Baby Grandma, taken from his album The Comeback Kid and nearing the end of our edition of Talking Animals here on WMNF Tampa. And um, just want to again thank uh, Dr. Danny McVitie and Ross Taylor for joining us for uh, that interview again about the film The Hardest Day. And we have, of course, coming up on WMNF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott, from noon to 3 p.m., a glorious three hours of uh, music, followed by Robin Hooper with yet another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our Black of Latin programming and beyond for uh, for this evening. So I've yeah, just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMF Tampa. Uh, my thanks to, uh, to Sean, DT, Lamar, and others for technical and other assistance in producing today's show from... Uh, effectively multiple locations so i hope you'll join me again next wednesday for another edition of talking animals I also invite you to visit talkinganimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast apple podcasts are available there too as well as on other podcast platforms there are links to our social media pages etc and there's also a place to sign up for a little weekly newsletter you can find out what's happening with our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the talking animals world i'm duncan strauss thanks very much for uh, listening have a good week be kind to animals be kind to others be kind to yourself this is talking animals on wmnf tampa brandon clearwater largo wikiwashi and beyond and we may have an instrumental or to um to roll us up to the npr news headlines and then following that the great scott elliott thanks so much for listening see you next week thanks